And so we need to stop thinking of frequency as the problem and start thinking of it as like the symptom. This is a symptom that there's something else going on. And so we need to figure out what that something else is and work on that something else. <laughs> Hello, and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri. We share the unchanging gospel of Jesus to change people's lives. So I'm happy to be back after a little bit longer summer break than I had intended or planned on taking. So thank you for your patience and, and waiting for the podcast to resume. In this interview, I'm uh, talking again with Sheila Gregoire. Um, we talked previously about her book, The Great Sex Rescue. Um, and that book does a really good job of deconstructing some of the harmful teachings in Christianity and the church, um, modern American Christianity and the church, uh, surrounding sex and sexual relationships. And I highly encourage going back and listening to um, my previous conversations with Sheila, as well as her her co-authors, her daughter, Rebecca Gregoire Lindenbach and Joanna Sawatsky. Um, those were three different episodes, a little bit ways back in the podcast, but it's worth scrolling back and, and re-listening to those um, as we go into this conversation with Sheila. And in this conversation, Sheila and I talk about uh, her 10th anniversary edition and revision of The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, as well as a book that she and her husband co-authored together this year, um, The Good Boy's Guide to Great Sex. Both of these books, by the way, um, talk about sex from a Christian perspective, but also a very research-based perspective, you know, drawing on, you know, their surveys of thousands of women and men uh, focus groups and interviews with hundreds of women and men. And both of these books also have been published by Zondervan. You know, so these are uh, significant books put out by a significant publisher. So uh, with all that uh, introduction, let's get to our interview with Sheila Gregoire. So Sheila, I thought that we might start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and talk a little bit about um, your work at tolovehonorandvacuum.com and your, you know, your books and your writing and, every, and speaking and everything that you're doing. Sure. Well, actually, two weeks ago, we just rebranded. So we're now baremarriage.com. It's been a it's been a long time coming. I'm very excited about it. Yeah, but I've been I started blogging in 2008. And I was mommy blogging, you know, parenting, organizing housework kids. And the more I talked about sex, the more my traffic grew. And so my blog started out as to love, honor and vacuum when you feel more like a maid than a wife and a mother. But over the years, we've really transformed more into maximizing um, your marriage and your sex life. And um, in the last few years, I've really zeroed in on research. So we've done some of the largest studies that have been done, especially in the religious circles on um, what kind of framing of sex can actually hurt women's, especially marriage and sex lives. And we've also surveyed men since then too. So really, really transforming um, the conversation and trying to look at it from more from a research standpoint as well. Awesome. And so I know, you know, you came out with this book, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex back in uh, 2012, but mm -hmm. now you've updated it and rewritten it for the 10th anniversary edition and incorporated a lot of your more recent research and, and those mm -hmm. findings. So what were some of the biggest changes in the 10th anniversary edition? 
Yeah, so I feel like I I shot it out of a cannon and then I picked up the pieces and I put the pieces back in the cannon and I shot them out again. And uh, it, it is very different. But I it's not that what I said was necessarily harmful. It's just that my emphasis is so completely different now. And I said a lot of, I think, very gendered stuff, like men are like this and women are like this. And the truth is that that isn't actually true. When you look at the research, you know, men can tend to be one way and women can tend to be this way. But like most things, uh, they exist on a bell curve and we have overlapping bell curves. <laughs> and so when we talk about how men want this and women want this, that's actually not a helpful way of framing it. And it's much more useful, I think, to talk about what does healthy look like in a relationship and how can we get there? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I think my entire life I've heard about marriage and relationships and sex in terms of that framing, you know. <laughs> men are this way, women are that way. And sometimes it become, those descriptions become so extreme. They almost seem like caricatures. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's like, you know, men don't talk. And here's an example to illustrate the point where two men go out for lunch and say three words to each other. And that's just not true. I mean, when uh -huh. I go with my friends, we talk for hours. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, that's a really interesting change. Um, did that change or any of the other changes surprise you? Um, yeah, I think the other big change that I made was, and this is a more fundamental thing that we really, that we, we honed in on once we saw the research is that this idea um, that women's libidos are low and the way to fix that is to tell women, Hey, he really needs it. And if you just understood how much he wanted sex, and if you could just be giving, it could transform your marriage. That is not a helpful way to talk about things. Um, and it's also not true. <laughs> like I, I call that the obligation sex message that a wife is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. And my earlier version didn't say it in those terms, but I think that it verged a little bit too close to that. It made me very uncomfortable. So I took all that out. Um, but Essentially, when we believe the obligation sex message, we're saying that his needs matter and hers don't. And if sex is supposed to be this deep connecting of two people, then both of you need to matter. And what we found, we so we surveyed 20,000 women for um, our first big research book was The Great Sex Rescue, uh, which is all the ways that things have gone wrong. And then after that, we wrote The New Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex and A Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex, where we incorporate a lot of our findings. But what we found in that original survey of 20,000 women is that frequency is not the issue. <laughs> okay, like we, we treat low frequency like this is the problem that needs to be solved because one person wants sex more than the other. And so we just need to up the frequency. So we need to tell the low drive spouse and we assume the low drive spouse is the woman, although it's not always, but we tell the low drive spouse, you just need to have sex more. But what we found is that in marriages where she frequently reaches orgasm, okay, I'm gonna list five things. So get ready here, people, okay? So when she frequently reaches orgasm, when there's high marital satisfaction, when they feel emotionally close during sex, when there's no porn use in the marriage and when there's no sexual dysfunction, frequency pretty much takes care of itself. Hmm. And so we need to stop thinking of frequency as the problem and start thinking of it as like the symptom. This is a symptom that there's something else going on. And so we need to figure out what that something else is and work on that something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
So I'm curious, like you mentioned sexual dysfunction is the last of those. And, you know, some people might think or say, well, yeah, the, the dysfunction is the lack of frequency. <laughs> and so I'm curious, you know, what, how do you define dysfunction? You know, what are some examples of that? And how can that yes. lead to the frequency issue? Yeah, so I'm thinking when, when we say sexual dysfunction, I really mean it in a medical term. So, you know, premature ejaculation, erectile dysfunction, um, vaginismus on the part of, of women, um, those sorts of, of actual sexual dysfunctions. And um, of those, especially in couples under the age of 45, vaginismus is the most common. So female sexual pain. And we never talk about it. Yeah, everyone knows what ED is, right? <laughs> like there's commercials for little blue pills. We all know what ED is, but we, but we don't talk about vaginismus, and it's a it's a really common issue, um, especially in faith communities. We found an incidence of about uh, 22.6%, I believe. Um, and this is something which physiotherapists can help with, and there there is help available for, but it can be quite debilitating. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, to your point, um, I had no idea what that was until. <laughs> I read, you know, interviewed you about the great sex rescue and read that book. Um, and whereas we have, you know, commercials in prime time and, you know, family viewing about, um, you know, ED medicine and things like that. Um, so you mentioned the good guy, the good guys guide to sex. So you wrote the good girls guide to sex, great sex. Mm -hmm. um, and then this year, you're, as you were rewriting that book, uh, your husband, Keith, Mm -hmm. um, collaborated with you on the Good Guys Guide to Great Sex. Um, and he's a, a pediatrician, right? And, and so he's got some of that medical expertise as well. Um, so I'm, I'd like to, you know, learn more about that book, you know, and, and what was the methodology? You know, you, did you mm -hmm. survey men similar to the Great Sex Rescue? And, you know, could you talk a little bit about how that book came about? Yeah. So Keith and I've been speaking at marriage conferences for, oh gosh, probably 17 years now. So we do a lot of speaking um, together and he's been writing more in the blog. And so we just thought, okay, this is a good idea. We're going to do this together. And we did, we surveyed uh, 3000 men and we were looking specifically again at, are there certain ways of framing sex or talking about sex that hurt sex for men or that make them more selfish lovers? Cause we had, we had uh, measures for that too. And we certainly did find that when, when men believe neg negative messages, like a wife is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants, when she, when he wants it, or all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle like that. Those are negative messages that those do impact women, men's sexual performance, men's sexual desires, men's sexual dissatisfaction with their wives increases, et cetera, et cetera. Um, here's an interesting one though. I think this is fascinating. So we asked both women and men identical questions so that we could measure it. And we said, all right, does he do enough foreplay? Okay. So we asked the husbands, do you do enough foreplay? We asked the wives, does your husband do enough foreplay? And what we found is that in marriages where she frequently reaches orgasm, roughly 90% of both men and women, I think it's like 94 of men and 88% of women or something. It's very, very high. Say yes, he does enough foreplay, which totally makes sense. But when she doesn't reach orgasm, it's still like 70% of guys say, yeah, I do enough foreplay. <laughs> you know? And lower amounts, I think it's like 60% or something of women. And when we ask, does he make your sexual pleasure a priority? You know, again, 70% of guys and 52% of women say, yes, he does, even when she doesn't reach orgasm. And so it seems like both men and women 
say when she doesn't reach orgasm, it's a problem with her. Mm. It's not a problem with lack of foreplay. It's not a problem with him not prioritizing. And so we're both assuming that she's the one who's broken. And yet when we looked at women's orgasm rates, the most, the most likely reason, the thing that was the most highly statistically significant um, for women's lack of orgasm was lack of foreplay. It was huge. Wow. So <laughs> I think what's happening is that we do not understand the sexual response cycle, especially for women. And, um, you know, cause you'll read books, you'll read tips and they all say, okay, she needs her clitoris touched or she needs, you know, you need to do this. And so you start sex and that's what he goes for. But what, what a lot of people don't understand is if she's not already aroused and you do that, it feels like a pap smear to her. Like it is not a nice experience. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and so he'll do that. He'll go straight for the genitals. She'll feel rather put out. And then her assumption is, I guess my body just doesn't work. Mm. I guess the things that are supposed to make me feel good, just don't make me feel good. And so he tries, nothing's happening. And she says, it's okay. Just go ahead. And this is what's happening for so many couples, because we, again, we have a huge orgasm gap. I know I talked about that with the great sex rescue, right? 47 point orgasm gap. And so our challenge to guys was, Hey, let's, let's figure this out <laughs> because sex can be something which is amazing. And if you get this right, especially early in the marriage, it can be such a tremendous force for good in your marriage. Um, but if you, the way you start your marriage has a tremendous impact on the trajectory of your sex life. And if you just go straight into it and she's not feeling good and you guys both put up with that, it's unlikely she's going to be able to keep up with sex for the next decade, decade and a half. Like things, things can, she'll keep doing it for a while, but then she's just going to get really cynical. So we got to get this right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm curious, did you, did your research explore what role, if any, like communication between couples, between the man and the woman played in that dynamic? Yeah, actually, um, a number of uh, peer-reviewed studies have found that one of the biggest predictors of women's orgasm is women's ability to speak up during sex and say what they want. And we measured that, like, are you able to tell your husband what you want? Um, and what we found is that that <laughs> is very important for orgasm. Yes. But that is also highly correlated with other things in the marriage. So if she feels heard when you have arguments, if she feels that her opinion matters just as much as his, you know, that it's far more likely that she's going to feel like she can speak up. So if she doesn't feel like she can speak up during sex, again, it may not be a sex issue. Like let's take a step back. And let's say, okay, hold on a second. Are we valuing her voice in other areas of the marriage? Does she feel like she can speak up? Because sex, it, we often compartmentalize sex and see it as separate from the rest of the marriage, but it actually all plays into each other. <laughs> and the better the rest of your marriage goes, the better, the easier it is to address a lot of these issues with sex too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, my wife and I were recently watching um, Amy Schumer's newish show, you know, Life and Beth. Yes. Um, and it's a very R-rated show uh, just for, you know, our our, list, our Christian listeners for this Christian podcast. Um, <laughs> but the thing that really, one thing that really jumped out at me was, you know, the Amy Schumer character and her friends are discussing their sex lives. And 
one of her friends basically says, you know, this new guy I'm dating uh, is great. You know, I tell him exactly what to do and he does it. <laughs> and and the, her friends, their minds are just like blown. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought, man, that is such a an important part of it that gets overlooked is, you know, the communication aspect. And, you know, and I appreciate you pointing out that a lot of that communication isn't just in the bedroom, but it's just in general, you know, and how mm -hmm. empowered, you know, people feel to express, you know, would you do this? Would you do that? No, go back to the other thing. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in the description of the book, you know, it suggests, uh, you know, it says that the book will help you figure out what women want. <laughs> so, so what do women want? <laughs> you know, one of the most frustrating things that I hear from a lot of guys is I'll say to her, just tell me what you want me to do. And she'll be like, I don't know. Like, I wish I could, but I don't know. And men, she's not lying. <laughs> like, like a lot of women truly don't know what they want because arousal is different in women. I know that I said earlier that I tried not to be so gendered, um, in the book, but this is one area, uh, where we actually are biologically a little bit different. And when you look at the sexual response cycle, you'll see that, um, so basically with the sexual response cycle is you start out with excitement. Okay. This is when, you're just starting to get warmed up. You're just starting to think about sex. Maybe your breathing is getting a little heavier. You're feeling a little fluttery. Like it's not, so there's nothing, there's not major changes going on, um, but you're just starting to feel excited. And then you get aroused, which is where you're getting more lubricated for her, um, you know, nipples getting more erect, all of that sort of thing. And then you get to plateau and then to orgasm. The thing is though, for men, all of those stages look almost identical. There's not, you know, you know, he's up, he's ready to go. Excitement, arousal looks almost identical, but for women, it is very different. And then there's one other aspect, which you can call desire. You can call libido. People call it different things, but it's that, it's that mental component and that emotional component when you're like, yeah, I actually really want to have sex right now. And for some people, um, and Emily Nagoski in her book, come as you are, she calls this you know, responsive versus spontaneous. So for some people that, that I really want to have sex right now, that comes first, you know, before even excitement or arousal, you're like, yeah, I'm ready. Let's go. And for some people, it doesn't actually kick in until after excitement. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, where maybe you're starting to kiss and she's not even sure what she wants right now, right? You're starting to kiss. And then as she gets warmer, then she's like, Oh, you know what? I actually would really like to have sex right now. And then you move through arousal, etc. Um, and more women than men are responsive versus spontaneous. So more women than men get that desire after excitement. So you get excitement, you're starting to warm up, then you're like, yes, I want sex. Um, but there are some women who are like, no, I want sex right now. And so let's, you know, <laughs> let's start kissing and feeling that and men, more men than women tend to be the other way. But there can be there can be overlap, right? Um, and the problem is that for a lot of women, they've never actually experienced real arousal. They don't know what gets them there. And so that's where, you know, a guy can just be an amazing lover by helping her figure it out. And it's like, this isn't something she can just tell you. This is something that you got to figure out and experience together. And chances are, it means slowing massively down. <laughs> <laughs> and don't focus on the genitals. Don't focus on her breasts. Just focus on, 
you know, let's just start by talking. Let's start by relaxing. Chances are one of the reasons that she can't get aroused is that she has like a million things going through her head. You know, um, I've got a meeting tomorrow at 8.30 before work and I've got to get ready for that. And the laundry needs to be put in the dryer and I've got to take meat out for dinner tomorrow night (laughs) out of the freezer. And your mom's birthday card is waiting to be mailed and she's got all of these things in her head. And so the more he can share some of those burdens, then the more relaxed she's going to be so that she's going to have room for desire to build. Um, But then it's just about, you know, talking, building that emotional connection, spending some time kissing and touching, and then she can start to pay attention to her body and go, oh, wait, something actually does want to be touched, (laughs) but she's not going to feel that right off the bat. That's interesting. Um, This is kind of an older analogy that I recall, but the analogy of, um, you know, a man's mind is kind of like one computer window open at a time, you know? mm-hmm. whereas a woman's mind might have like 20 windows open at the same time. That's what that description reminds me of that a little bit, um, you know, and the, it makes sense, you know, and, and just thinking about my own wife, you know, she can have several different things like you described running through her mind all more or less at the same time. And I, it's very distracting, if, if nothing else, you know, distracting from the present moment. Is that a fair analogy or description of of what you're describing? Yeah, that is what happens. Definitely. And that is, that is one of the biggest problems for women with desire building. It's not, however, something which is biological or innate. It really is the way that we do life because they've done, I, and I didn't even know this until two years ago where I looked at the research, but they've done studies on this. Women are not better multitaskers than men. Everyone thinks women are, we're not, we are not naturally meant to multitask. We just simply have more practice because we've been in this situation where you have to be caring for a toddler and dinner still has to be made. And I have to remember about the laundry and I'm talking on the phone at the same time to arrange for the guy to come fix the furnace. And so we're, we're, we're juggling all of this stuff and it can be exhausting. And often when, you know, a husband wants to help, he'll say, well, what do you want me to do? Just give me a list. And he thinks he's being this great guy. But the problem with asking for a list is that she still has to keep track of everything to know what goes on that list. And so what, you know, one thing that that Keith and I have done is we own different things. So he owns laundry. Okay. I don't even think about laundry. He owns the laundry. He notices if the detergent is running low so that we need to put it on the grocery list. Like he, he does all the laundry, he folds laundry, et cetera. I own meals. Okay. So I do all the cooking. I do all the meal prep, et cetera. Um, and he also owns bathroom cleaning. So it's pretty, it's pretty even, you know, but like, I don't think about the laundry and he doesn't think about the meals. (laughs) So it's not that I'm supervising and I'm telling him, okay, it's now your turn to do the laundry. He just owns it. Yeah. And, and that can be an incredible gift is when a husband just takes ownership of something like maybe you're going to own the medical appointments. So you're going to figure out when all the kids need their booster shots, when all the kids need to go for their checkups, um, when we need to get the camp form signed by the doctor, whatever it is, you know, you're going to keep track of all that. You're going to own the dentist appointments. You're going to put it in the calendar. You're going to make sure there's someone available to take them so that, you know, and, and it's that kind of negotiation because what's happened is a lot of stuff has fallen on women 
And then we literally have all this stuff in our heads. And so we can't relax. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. So the more that that can be shared and the, the technical term that people use a lot is either mental load or cognitive labor, like the mental load or cognitive labor that women do. And the more men can share that, the more libido flourishes because it has room. That, that makes complete sense. Um, yeah, you've got my my wheels spinning right now. I'm thinking about <laughs> implications of all of that. Um, yeah, I mean, for I remember reading books that just and you know hearing people talk about that as though it were a biological thing, but it makes sense that no, it's not. It's actually just practice, and just mm -hmm. you know taking it taking some things off your partner's plate, not in the sense of you know give me the list, but rather just don't even worry about that. Don't think about that. You know, I mean, there are certain, you know, several things that I don't have to think or worry about at all, um, because that's something, you know, my wife just does and takes care of. And, you know, there, are, I think there are some things that I kind of do as well, but it's more of like, I've noticed this is stressing you out this week, you know, let me help out with that, or, you know, let me take care of dinner tonight or something like that. Um, and I probably could do a better job of saying, you know, let me just own this forever. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so so this is, you know, a lot of what we were just describing or discussing kind of uh, relates to my next question, but how do emotional, spiritual, and physical intimacy all work together? Yeah, again, we tend to compartmentalize. And what what often happens is that people make uh, the wrong assumption about which comes first. You know, so you have the chicken or the egg thing, right? Like which comes first, sexual connection or, or emotional connection. And we think that, well, if if someone really desires sex, then if they have sex, the, the, the couple will feel more connected. And to a certain extent, that's true. I mean, at orgasm, we do release the uh, bonding hormone oxytocin. You feel closer to each other. Um, that does not get released by the way, that much for women, if she doesn't reach orgasm. So <laughs> it isn't going to make her feel closer necessarily. Um, it is the orgasm that does that. However, uh, we, we measured this and we found that while, um, enhancing emotional connection outside the bedroom can really enhance sexual intimacy, sexual intimacy alone cannot make up for a lack of emotional connection. And in fact, can make emotional connection worse. So, so, um, the more sex you have in general, the better your marriage is until you have sex daily. The people who have sex daily, um, she's often very, very unhappy because quite often there's a lot of obligation and there's a lot of very strange messaging around sex there. And that doesn't actually help the marriage at all. <laughs> so, um, you know, daily sex is not, is not that great a thing. Um, but if you enhance the, the emotional connection, the sexual connection will tend to, to do better. And certainly if the marriage is pretty good and the sex gets better, it's going to make the marriage better too. But if the marriage, if you're not connecting outside the bedroom, having sex can make you feel even less connected because often we're asking sex to do something, which it can't do because, you know, sex is the culmination of our relationship. Sex is how we express what is happening in our relationship. If what is happening in your relationship is distance and you don't feel intimate and you don't feel known 
and then you have sex expecting it to fix it, it can actually leave you feeling even more empty. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people think that sex can help us feel connected so that we can avoid the work of actually connecting. And it doesn't work. And so we have to figure out how to do that connecting outside the bedroom too. And then everything can really start to build. So, you know, you do the connection work outside the bedroom, you have sex, sex gets even better. That makes your emotional connection even better. And you, you build it on this upward cycle, which is great, but sex alone can't cause emotional connection. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Um, You know, there's that saying that, you know, sex begins in the kitchen, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. you want to try to, you know, help out around the house, take some things off your wife's plate. She's not so exhausted. She doesn't have as many things off her mind. She appreciates your work, your service or whatever. I, it occurs to me that that message goes off the rails sometimes or can, because it can become, at least the way maybe I interpreted that advice is it can almost become obligatory. Um, Mm -hmm. and so what I hear you saying is, um, emotional connection, you know, it's complex. It involves a lot of different things. You know, we could talk about love language. We could talk about a lot of different factors that go into that, but, but if you're prioritizing that emotional connection, um, and that spiritual connection, that's going to also play out in physical intimacy as well and then you know vice versa that's going to reinforce the emotional connection um Mm -hmm. but if you're trying to substitute things like you know i i i want to you know do x so i can you know (laughs) get y that's not necessarily going to work you know that becomes that obligatory sex message that Mm -hmm. you talked about um is that am i understanding correctly yeah exactly and so and I, and I think too, the thing about emotional connection, the real key is vulnerability. Yeah. Am I able to be vulnerable with my spouse? Do they feel like they truly know me? Um, and do I truly know them? Because it's not just about doing nice things for your spouse or which are great. I mean, yes, by yeah. all means, everyone should be doing kind things for each other. Uh, everyone should be serving each other, but it's really, am I willing to be open with them? Am I willing to let them really see who I am? And that can be a very intimidating thing for a lot of people. We're not comfortable with our emotions. Um, and to get into psychological terms, you can have attachment issues where being emotionally open is is scary. Um, but that's what fuels emotional connection. And so, you know, getting comfortable expressing your emotions is so key. And it doesn't have to be a super scary thing. Here's a really simple exercise you can do. Okay. Really, really simple. Um, that can help you get in touch with your emotions and express them. So at the end of the day, right, you both get home from work or one of you gets home from work, the other was home, whatever. And often the question we ask ourselves is, so how was your day? Right. Or what did you do today? And how do you answer that? Like, uh, well, I had six client meetings and then I went to the bank at lunch and, you know, like, it, so we start sharing all of these facts, right? Like this is, this is what happened today. That doesn't actually help you necessarily feel closer because you haven't shared anything emotional. It's, it's sharing emotional stuff that makes you feel closer. So here's just one way that you can tweak it. That makes all the difference is share the time today where I felt the most in the groove like Holy Spirit working through me. This is what I was put on earth to do. Like <laughs> I am using my gifts. This is amazing. I'm in the groove. 
So share the moment where you felt the most in the groove and then share the moment where you just felt the most defeated, like exhausted. I hate this. You know, <laughs> I don't want to do this. Um, and some people call it the high, low exercise. I don't like necessarily that because it's not necessarily the best and the worst. It's just, it's more how you felt. Like, when was I the most in the groove? When was I the most defeated? And, um, that's a, that's a much easier exercise to do, uh, than tell me how you are feeling or, <laughs> you know, tell me what is going on in your heart or let's connect, you know, just these two moments. Um, and as you share them with your spouse, you start to notice things about yourself too. I, I, Keith and I started this a few years ago and I realized that the, every time, like for five days in a row, the moment that I felt the most defeated was when I checked my inbox and I was just overwhelmed. Right. And that was when I realized, okay, I'm going to hire someone to go through my email. <laughs> I'm not going to do it anymore. It's a big help, you know? Um, but those give you two emotional windows on each other. And then you're able to just keep up emotionally with each other. And that's a good way to recognize your own emotions too. Yeah. Yeah. So much good advice there. Um, and, you know, I think I'll be a little vulnerable in this moment and just, you know, share, you know, we tend to stereotype men and women, you know, as, you know, well, women need this emotional connection. Men are maybe less emotional. But when you're talking about, um, being vulnerable and you know we're talking about that in the context of its relationship to our emotional intimacy and our physical intimacy you know I was thinking about recent times where you know I felt like I expressed feelings that I felt like were minimized mm -hmm. <laughs> and that did not put me in the mood you know I mean <laughs> and so I just share that you know because you know, for anybody listening who maybe is trying to wrap their head around this, you know, think about that time that maybe you felt like your feelings were not taken seriously. And you might be a man, you know, men have feelings too. And mm -hmm. we sometimes feel like our feelings may be minimized in one way or another. Um, and, you know, did that make you want to go jump in bed later? Probably not, you know, or did you feel like jumping in bed, you know, uh, at that time? Probably not. Um, so we're kind of getting at, you know, these obstacles that get in the way of our, our sex lives. You know, what are, uh, are there any other common obstacles that maybe derail a great sex life for, for people? Okay. Here's just a really simple one mm -hmm. that we often forget. And it's, it's a product of modern times. Okay. But when I was a kid, everybody went to bed either at 10, 15 or at 1120 or 1030 or 1120. Okay. Cause 1030, the evening news was over and 1120, the Johnny Carson monologue on the tonight show was over. So you would stay up either to watch the evening news or Johnny Carson, and then you'd go to bed. This just shows how old I am. Anyway, <laughs> today there is nothing making anybody go to bed at, at a specific time because we have streaming, we have video games, everything is 24 hours. You can get everything at in the throughout the night. And so a lot of couples do not go to bed at the same time. Whereas most couples did a couple of decades ago today, most couples do not go to bed at the same time. And that is one of the biggest intimacy killers. And I mean, intimacy in both senses of the word. So sexual intimacy killers, but also emotional intimacy killers, because, you know, going to bed at the same time, you're brushing your teeth together. You're, you know, you're getting into your, you're talking about your day, you know, you're planning for tomorrow, you're processing stuff together, you know, you're cuddling, like all of this stuff helps. 
Um, but often what happens is one person goes to bed, the other person stays up and, uh, and then you get, you just don't have that time. Cause I'll tell you often sex happens because it's spontaneous. Yeah. You know, you were lying in bed, you were just talking, you started to touch, you started to kiss and then sex comes, <laughs> right? It's not, it's not that you necessarily planned it ahead of time. When you got into bed, you weren't even sure if anything was going to happen. But then it happens. And so when we're not in the same room at the same time, at the time of day where sex is the most likely to happen, <laughs> you're going to find that your sex life isn't as great and your emotional life isn't as great either. So, you know, just a little tweak. If, if you can go to bed at the same time, even if one of you is a night owl and one of you ends up getting up later and spending another couple hours up, that's okay. But like, just honor that time. Maybe that's when you do brush your teeth. That is when you do get in your pajamas, even if you put your robe on and get up afterwards, like that's fine. But, but practice going to bed at the same time. It's such a little thing. It can make a tremendous difference. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, hearing your description of that bedtime routine is occurred to me too, that that could be part of that, uh, cycle of relaxation, you know, and, and mm-hmm. arousal cycle. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so in the good guys, good guys guide to great sex, um, in the description, it talks about, you know, identifying one big mistake that Christians in particular make on their honeymoon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more than about that and how Christian couples can get off to a good start. Yeah. So, um, we, we looked at this in depth in our surveys and, what we found is that when you say, I'm going to wait for marriage for sex. Okay. And that's a good idea. I actually think that we should, but when we phrase it that way, I'm going to wait for marriage for sex. It makes it sound like as soon as I'm married, I should have sex. Okay. And that's what a lot of couples do. They end up, they go back to their apartment, their hotel room, wherever it is on their, on their wedding night. And okay, now we have to have sex and we picture sex as penetration And a lot of women described it to us as it was just, it was bewildering. I, you know, it was awkward. It was so uncomfortable. I didn't know what I was doing. And most women on their honeymoon are having intercourse for the first time when they're not aroused. And that (laughs) there's an interesting study that just came out that shows that, uh, if a woman orgasms at her first sexual experience, if you look at her like 10, 10 years later, her libido is basically the same as her partner's. But if that first sexual experience is terrible, her libido is going to be a lot lower. So we teach our bodies learn. <laughs> and, and, and so you can dig yourself a hole early in the marriage that just takes a long time to climb out of. So my recommendation is let's stop talking about, you know, once we're married, we get to have sex and let's start saying, okay, let's wait for marriage for sex. And then let's wait until we're comfortable and aroused. Cause we need to think of this as a three-part thing. Okay. The first stage is just feeling comfortable. You just got to be comfortable being naked together. Maybe you take a bath, maybe you touch each other. Like it, you're just, you're just trying to feel not awkward. Then you want to get her aroused. So we want to spend a long time figuring out how her body works. And that may take like, that may take a couple of days. It may not be something that happens that first night. And then after you're comfortable, after she's aroused, then try intercourse. <laughs> But don't go for it all right at the same time. You're not some British monarch from the 1400s that has to prove that the deed has been done. Okay. <laughs> this is something that you can build to. And um, one of the more, more depressing stats that we found is when you look at couples where they only have ever had sex with each other. 
Okay. So, and we controlled for abuse. So, you know, not abuse wasn't a factor here and couples where they only ever had sex with each other. If you look at people who had sex before the marriage versus people who waited for marriage, you're 25% more likely to have vaginismus if you wait. Hmm. And this is not an argument that we shouldn't wait. It's just an argument that the way we're doing the honeymoon is really wrong. Because if you have sex before marriage, usually it's because you were making out and you got carried away. <laughs> so she was aroused and raring to go. But then if on the wedding night, you just go right to intercourse, it is going to feel really awkward for her and it can vastly increase the chance of sexual dysfunction. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so in the book, you you and Keith talk about pornography and its effects as well. Um, so how does you know porn use affect both men and relationships? Yeah, so the big thing with porn... Well, first of all, huh, you have to be against porn, I think, just because of the justice sex trafficking issue. Um, and people can argue that there's ethical porn, but the studies have shown that they're <laughs> figuring out what is ethical porn is very iffy. And so, no, like this is this is something which is the biggest driver of sex trafficking. And it, chances are you're watching someone actually be abused. So we need to, we need to take that seriously. Um, but pornography creates a situation where um, you see the other person as objectified. They're only there for what they can give you. It's not about intimacy. It's not about sharing yourself. It's not about being vulnerable. It's just about using someone. So uh, it's not a deep knowing. It's just a using and a taking. And that can seriously distort your view of sex as well as your view of relationship. So it really does do a lot of harm. We also found though, that the way that we often talk about porn, especially in the church is off because, you know, you'll hear stats like 80% of guys use porn. Um, and when we say that that's very defeatist, like if 80% of men are honestly using porn, then what's the, what's the point in even trying to stop? Cause this is something everybody does. What we found is that, yes, I think the number was like 82% of men have used porn over their lifetime, but currently among evangelical Christian married men, the, the number is more like 50%, a little bit, I think it's like 49 point something percent of men are currently using porn. Most of them rarely, some of them in intermittent binges and very few of them daily or weekly. So, you know, it, it, it is a huge problem. 50% is huge, but it's not 80%. And I think that's important to keep in mind because when we say 80%, we make it sound like you can't fix it. So, uh, and then the other thing we found is that if a guy does quit porn, especially before he's married, so he quits porn and he doesn't have an objectified view of women, his sex life can be just as good as if he hadn't used porn, almost as good. Like there's negligible differences, but it's not huge. So it's not like you've wrecked your life. And I think that's a really important message to give to our teen boys. Um, because often what they're hearing is very defeatist. Like, this is it. You'll never get it back. Um, you've wrecked everything. And the truth is they haven't. If you quit now, <laughs> you know, chances are things are going to be really good if you develop a proper view of women. And even if you quit after you're married, things are still, things can still get good, but you need to quit, not just the porn, but also the objectified view of women. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that's really well said and really encouraging. And I would agree that, you know, we 
in the church, we tended to frame that in a very defeatist and weird way. Um, you know, like every man's battle, you know, it, mm-hmm. it kind of makes it sound, makes it seem like it's a little weird if you don't struggle with yes. pornography and lust, you know, and so then it, it becomes this weird, like, marker of masculinity and identity, um, but then also something you're supposed to be ashamed of and fight against, and it just, it's almost like a house divided against itself, um, and so I, I really appreciate the way you frame that as, you know, um, this is something that you can do deal with. You can quit it. And if you quit it, you can stay off of it and you can continue, you know, to go on to have a, a very fulfilling, intimate relationship with your your partner. Mm-hmm. Um so how can couples help each other heal from you know past trauma, maybe previous relationships, um, or even porn use? Yeah, I think the key thing in everything is to be able to be vulnerable with each other. So to be able to tell people honestly what you're feeling and what you're thinking, and then seek out the help that you need. There is so much help out there for different things. You know, licensed therapists who uh, have evidence-based training in, in trauma. So there's so many different therapies. There's EMDR, there's IFS. You don't need to know what those things are, but, but just trust me that there are actual therapies that do work, that have been shown to work um, to help people get over sexual trauma. Because sexual trauma, sexual abuse is something that so many people, both men and women, um, have in their pasts. And it can be so debilitating and it was never meant to happen to anyone. Um, but there, there is help available. Uh, if there's sexual dysfunction, you know, please see a doctor, please go see a pelvic floor physiotherapist. If you're a woman, go see, you know, a urologist, if you're a guy, like there, there is help out there. And then if it is pornography, I really suggest seeing a licensed therapist. There's so much evidence that this white knuckling approach by which I mean, we're just going to try harder. We're just going to try harder to quit. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm just going to install filters. I'm going to get an accountability partner. That'll all be fine. What that's really doing is it's it's imposing these outward um, blocks on you to try to curb your outward behavior, but it's not really doing anything on the inward part. And so see a licensed counselor and figure out what is the root to my addiction? Because most people have an addiction. Most people turn to porn um, because it helps, it helps cover up some hurt that they were having that they can't deal with. And so this is where I turn to, so that I don't have to confront the pain or the insecurity or whatever it is. And it becomes a coping mechanism. So when you can get to the root of what is it that I'm trying to cope with and then develop positive coping mechanisms, then the hold that porn has on you often isn't as great. Um, but you need help with that. And that's where you see a licensed therapist, um, please. Cause there is so much help available. Yeah, absolutely. And and I really appreciate you emphasizing evidence-based and licensed. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think in you know a lot of Christian circles, you know, we may say, well, go talk to your pastor or go talk to an accountability partner or go, you know, here's a Christian counselor you can go talk to. And, you know, and that's there's nothing wrong with any of that, but there are sometimes challenges or issues that we might have that really requires, you know, someone with a degree in psychology or psychiatry, mm-hmm. they're, you know, a licensed counselor or therapist um, who can draw not just on spiritual resources, but also on the scientific and evidence-backed 
uh, resources and information as well. Mm -hmm. um, Sheila, thank you so much for talking with me. And I'd like to, to give you a chance to tell our listeners where they can get your books, The, the Gr Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex and The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just hope, I hope that they become like the bridal shower gift for every couple mm -hmm. getting married. Cause then maybe if we can get off to a good start, then people won't need the great sex rescuator. So that's my aim, <laughs> but you can find, yeah, The Good Girl's Guide, Good Guy's Guide, The Great Sex Rescue, um, anywhere you buy books. Uh, but you can take a look at my website, baremarriage.com. You can see my podcast there, the Bear Marriage Podcast. There's links to all our books, to our courses. We have an orgasm course, a boost your libido course, all of those things as well. Even a course on how to tell your kids about puberty and sex. So go take a look at baremarriage.com and you'll find links to everything. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Sheila. And, and have a good rest of the day. You too. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation with Sheila. And I hope you did too. I hope that, you know, you uh, perhaps learned some nuggets that would be helpful in your relationships. Um, many years ago, um, you know, my wife, Jessica, and I had not been married very long. And we moved across the country to Northern Virginia and we're living, you know, just a little bit outside Washington, D.C. And we found a, a church. We joined a small group for young married couples. Uh, I think we were the youngest there in the group. And, you know, the, the older people in the group were, you know, in their early 30s, mid 30s, actually younger than I am now. <laughs> and uh, that uh, I remember one woman saying, actually, let me back up. We uh, our first night there, Jessica and I, our first night in this small group with all these you know, people we have just met. Um, we're talking about a chapter in a you know, Christian marriage book. That deals with sex. So this could have been really awkward, but fortunately it wasn't. You know, everyone, you know, had a, a healthy, mature adult conversation and the leaders did a great job. But I remember uh, one woman saying, you know, my husband and I have been married for 10 years, so we've had issues in this area. Um, and, you know, now I've been married for, uh, you know, so I tell that story just to make the point that it seems like if you've been married for a significant period of time, you probably have experienced those, at minimum, times when you and your partner are kind of out of sync, so to speak. Um, and you may have experienced more significant issues than that. And so I really hope this episode is helpful and life-giving in terms of um, facilitating healing and restoration um, and as Sheila said, you know, if you need to get help, there's lots of help and resources out there. Um, and you are not the only person seeking those. Uh, the, all those resources exist for a reason. So thank you, as always, for listening. And uh, I hope you uh, continue to listen uh, as we go into some of our other episodes in this new season of the podcast. I plan to... Uh, do episodes on church history, um, episodes about Judaism. I've gotten kind of really interested in that um, recently, and I want to do some reading and research on that and then share what I learned. Um, I probably will do some episodes about the history of the Methodist church in particular, and also um, maybe a couple just random episodes here and there about, you know, current events and current, you know, ways of looking at 
things in, in the world from a Christian point of view. Um, so I hope you enjoy Metamorphosis.